What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Justin Smith at Recharge Ventures. Recharge is a first time fund that's betting on consumer technology within emerging markets. Justin's a friend of ours, an advisor to our syndicate, and he's one of the smartest, most genuine guys we've met since starting out Confluence last year. In this talk, we discuss starting a fund from scratch, the opportunity for consumer tech in emerging markets, and investing into consumer brands in today's world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, everybody, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Today, we have someone who is very near and dear to our heart in our community. We have Justin Smith from Recharge Ventures. I'm not going to say anything about his fund. I'll let him take over for that. But what I will say is that as an advisor and close friend to the Confluence in our community, like without him, we wouldn't have been able to do any of our syndicates, which meant, which means that we probably wouldn't have uh, got the curse to try to launch up our own fund and do a lot of other things. And just generally as a directional guide, he's been pivotal to everything we're doing. So thank you, Justin. And with that, I'd love to give you the floor to give a little bit of background on yourself from everything from working at tier one shops to launching some of the best syndicates to, you know, what you're doing today. Awesome. Well, thanks, Todd. I think you give me way too much credit for that, but it's been very enjoyable working with you guys. And I think what you've built with the Confluence platform is really awesome bringing together this community. But anyways, a little bit of background on me. I currently run the venture arm for Recharge Capital. We're a consumer tech focused fund in emerging markets, primarily in Latin America, as well as Southeast Asia. We operate on the Recharge platform, which is made up of several operating entities in Asia, as well as a $5 billion asset manager that has several uh, strategies, including fund to funds and direct investing. And prior to that, I ran an angel list syndicate called Chaos Ventures that has still in operation now and run by my other partner, Dustin. We've got roughly 1,600 LPs in our base. We've deployed over $25 million in capital and 45 deals. And honestly, that entity has been a great experience to kind of get connected to more of the tech ecosystem. We've gotten to know a lot of our LPs. There are a lot of tech execs. There's some family offices scattered across the world. And it's been really awesome kind of getting a front row seat to the development of syndicates. And I love seeing kind of like the deal allocations go around, the different individuals getting involved, and ultimately kind of seeing how these syndicates differentiate themselves with one another over time. Prior to that, I kind of had a standard career in finance. I started out as a CPA, met a big four, went over and worked in leverage finance on the sell side for Jefferies. And then I worked out of a, a hedge fund vehicle for Providence Equity Partners and private credit. And I didn't really get into the tech scene actually until 2015 when I moved over to work at Tusk Ventures in their first fund. And since then, I've loved every bit of it. I've worked out of their first fund, helped deploy that, that capital into consumer tech companies operating in regulated in industries. And then I went over to Argo to help start their corporate venture fund focused on insure tech and fintech broadly. 
And uh, then I had a stint working, running the sales team for our Series D company called Rock that operated in the marketing technology space. So that's basically my background. And right now we're currently fundraising for Recharge. And I really love what I do. Yeah, it's clear, man. You're one of the most passionate people that we've met. And uh, very impressive story. With that, give us the download on Recharge, bro. What's, what's up? Yeah, so Recharge, <laughs> I mean, it's been... Yeah, it's interesting. So Lauren and I got to know each other actually back when I was at Tusk. We had invested in the same safe agreement for a company called Careof that was really one of the first movers in direct-to-consumer and vitamins. And after that safe, when I moved over to Argo, I led a deal on a company called Cadence in New York and joined as a board observer for them. And Lauren and I got to know each other through um, that board membership for a couple of years. And then when I built out Chaos, we started doing some co-investing together again both in Cadence again, and then in a company called Walla down in Argentina that Lauren had previously funded. And Recharge has just grown astronomically. The operating businesses have done extremely well. The uh, funds that we've invested in, we're actually, fun, we're actually LPs ourselves in about 150 fund vehicles across the world, 40 of which are VCs. And what we're trying to do now is build out various thematic strategies under the Recharge umbrella and raise third-party capital for them. We've got certain vehicles that are focused more on crossover strategies that are both public and private. We've got some vehicles that are focused more on just private equity, some that are on private credit. And then we've got this venture capital vehicle that I run that's primarily just focused on consumer technology and emerging markets. And so what we do is we are, this is technically our third fund vehicle, but we go in and we're leading deals in Southeast Asia and co-investing in Latin America and writing any checks from anywhere from 500K to $3 million. And our primary value add is outside of the operating companies that we have that help with distribution and commercialization of some of our startups products is we also retain a really heavy network of tier one investors that we've been able to successfully engineer cap tables on top of us and collaborate on diligence with these companies. And so that gives us a leg up both on de-risking our early stage bets and also being able to put the right people in the boardroom after we've already invested. Justin, um, wait, before we jump on yeah. the next one, could you talk a little bit more about the thought there, we're going off script here, but the thought there of building out the networks on both the distribution side and the capital partner side, we're thinking about that really similarly, but would love to get your take on that. You mean distribution of like products for portfolio companies? Yeah, exactly. Well, along with like downstream capital as well. Because I think yeah, those well, are the two things that matter most for, for portfolio companies. They do, yeah. they do, yeah. The second one is rather self-explanatory because a lot of seed stage funds and series A funds are able to come out and say they have really good relationships with tier ones. And they're able to prove that through high follow-on rates. I wouldn't say that we're that much differentiated outside of the fact that we actually put our money where our mouth is because we have $5 billion in assets invested with these funds. So we really do get kind of like the pick of the litter on getting to see deals before they go out uh, publicly. In terms of distribution, that's probably better explained in an example basis. Essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to go in and we will make US investments. And those investments are usually going to be in consumer brands that have universal appeal. And the idea is that we can take those particular brands and help them distribute into Southeast Asia. And we can do that through our you know, connections to particular countries, both on the diplomatic side and the, on the business side. And then the reverse is also true because we can take companies like Elix Healing, for instance, and we can help them get hooked up with manufacturers in Taiwan that helps increase their SKU count and then take their products over to the West. And in the case of Elix Healing, they're doing traditional Chinese medicine, which 
I didn't realize, but actually more than 50% of Chinese pharmaceuticals are TCM as opposed to traditional pharmaceuticals that we're used to. And we believe that particular type of product has a lot of appeal in Western markets. So you can see there's kind of like the cross distribution strategy and recharge sort of straddles both sides of it. We can invest both in the US and we can effectively invest in emerging markets. All right. You wanna tell us a little bit about kind of what it was like for you to kind of transition and build up this network and, and, and capabilities on top of building a really dope syndicate. What was that process like? Yeah, the syndicate was, I guess, kind of serendipitous. When Argo sort of had its issues going on the pandemic and the fund decided not to continue to uh, invest capital, you know, the next step was really trying to figure out, well, we had already built out sort of a network and they had these relationships with entrepreneurs. And if there was a way to connect the dots with high net worth individuals that I knew in my network and put together these SPVs, then why not do it? And luckily, when I worked at Tusk Ventures, it was early days of SPVs and I had already had experience sort of putting these together from scratch using the resources that Tusk provided on both the legal and banking side. And I tell you, doing the first SPV was really difficult. And we did not do it on AngelList. We actually just did it manually by setting up a bank account that was specifically used for that particular deal. That bank account still exists today and has had a zero balance ever since the deal closed. And we got <laughs> lawyers to draw up some pretty simple docs for an operating agreement and put together an LLC to do it. So um, you didn't use any software. We didn't use any software for that. And I can tell you, it probably took in the realm of like 30 to 35 hours to do it. And that's when I realized that particular administrative piece needed to be solved with tech. And that, honestly, I know I'm kind of like a, a fan of AngelList despite some of its flaws, but the tech that they've kind of put in place to help syndicates efficiently monetize their networks and bring capital to these deals is a really good piece of tech. Most definitely. Can you maybe share some of the secrets on how you are able to rise uh above all the noise like there's so many syndicates and yeah, there, there, there is no it's a good point Todd. honestly there's more syndicates now than there was three months ago and there was more three months ago than there was three months before that and there's an exponential growth going on in the syndicate world and pretty much the barriers to entry are relatively low and if you're a decently connected person in the tech space both on the sourcing side and on the fundraising side then you can probably put together your own deal. Granted, getting from zero to one is difficult to do and what we've seen happen. And I get a half dozen emails a day of new syndicates trying to co-syndicate deals. And the reason for that is they're using their access as a bargaining chip to try and win over LPs, which makes total sense. And so what Chaos has developed into, similar to what um, some of the other syndicates, the bigger syndicates have developed into, is really helping these syndicates get started. I look at it and go, yeah, I'd love to be part of this great deal. I'd love to partner with this person. And I'm happy to share my LP base to help them get off the ground and get started. And what I've realized is that, you know, collaboration is definitely the better way to be because also in the long term, you can see the cross-pollination of all of these LPs across all the syndicates. And what really is going to differentiate one syndicate from another is really two things. A, do you have good deal access that's exclusive and not going to be shared with other syndicates by the founder? And B, can you build up some sort of edge among your LP base? Both of those things are pretty hard to do, and it remains to be seen how it plays out. But I'm really encouraged by these platforms because I think that founders have been able to find new sources of financing, especially to backfill some of the rounds that are being led by other tier one or tier two VCs. 
And I think for the LP base, like the family office and the high net worth, it's an unbelievable opportunity that allows them to invest alongside, you know, top tier VCs for relatively low fees. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like for you to build your fund from scratch? It seems like the syndicate was a really great first stop, but I'm sure there was like a lot of non-obvious things that you may have taken away from the syndicate side of things that don't necessarily translate to running a fund. So, so what are, what's the difference there? So you're referring uh, specifically to recharge, right? Yeah. So like now we kind of got a little bit of the sauce of what it was like for you to be able to raise against. And like now that you become a key player, you can help others and benefit from that a ton. Yeah. Like what is it like for you to transition from running a syndicate to running a fund? Like my assumption is from talking to a lot of the community, very similar to my, myself and Clay, is that most people do a syndicate with hopes to one day have their own fund. So you've actually made that jump. Yeah, there's a much higher level of structure and professionalism that comes into the fund business. And I worked out of Tusk Ventures, which was an emerging manager at the time. And Argo Ventures was also- It is now one of the best early stage investors in the country. You know? No, they've done, they've done extremely well and they're on their third fund now. And things like working for the fund businesses, it, you know, there's really, there's an administrative aspect to it that a lot of people don't think about. And some people refer to it as sort of the VC stack. And what that is like being able to properly manage all the different workflows within the actual VC business on top of creating a product around your VC platform. And so you're kind of doing both. And that's really what I've been trying to do at Recharge is A, getting that tech stack in place, whether it's your CRM or your ability to monitor portfolio companies or your ability to efficiently put together investment memos. Everything really has to be professionalized because now you are dealing with family offices, institutional LPs that expect a certain level of information on where their capital is being deployed. And at the same time, it also requires you to really map out the entire universe of whatever you're focusing on. And so that, you know, comes down to being able to proactively source within thematic frameworks, which is exactly what we do at Recharge within the emerging market landscape, and being able to access your network in such a way that opens up opportunities that you might not have seen before. And so we track everything. The same thing, the same way that we used to map out enterprise clients when I was running the sales team over at Rock, we do the same thing within Recharge where we map out different relationships and we carefully track individuals that come into our community and how we can help them and how we can share deals and be collaborative. And I think that's really important to kind of keep that in line because everybody is competitive, but they are collaborative at the same time. And there's, you know, kind of a balancing act to that. But I would say, you know, moving from the syndicate model to the fund model, it's really important to get back to, you know, sound underwriting principles. I think in the syndicate business, it's definitely a little bit more of a volume business and quickly building out a brand and an LP base. Whereas in the fund business, you really are held accountable for a track record and you need to stick to strict standards, stay within your mandate and always apply sound underwriting principles with a lot of investment discipline. And there's a lot of subjective thought that goes into these decisions. And it's really important to kind of figure out what your playbook is and once you have a playbook that works, stick with it and follow that playbook continuously. You can iterate on it and improve it, but it's important to always stick to your fundamentals. Most definitely. Yeah, I would argue that a lot of these syndicates, 
have not put up the, the level of discipline needed from process to more importantly, the investment. It is interesting when you don't have the ability to just sell a deal. You know, like it's really easy to sell one really great deal, but if you can't have someone have full confidence in you long-term, it's a completely different ball game. So congrats. And a lot of that is built out over time through an actual track record and making people money. Because obviously when I, when you bring something out on the syndicate world and Sequoia is leading the deal or NEA is leading it, it's a pretty easy sell. You almost don't even have to say anything for a lot of those investments to go through, but what is really impressive is the syndicates that are able to go out and lead a pre-seed or a seed deal. And there's some investors in it, but maybe they're lesser known names. And they do some really interesting diligence on it that's very thoughtful. And LPs want to actually invest because of that thoughtfulness. And I think that's a really important and tangible that you only build up over time and with sound track record. And I think, you know, the syndicates at this point, with the exception of a few that probably existed before 20, 2019, are still too young to have a track record to really prove that out. That's true, man. Very true. Yeah, I, I don't think that many of them will be able to convert. But those who do like yourself and hopefully us and a few of our close friends will actually be in a really solid position because they've built the networks and actually learned how to hustle, which I don't think most funds have in the books, right? Like you either got the hustle and the network or you got some type of proprietary platform or stack. And, you know, now a lot of the, the folks like yourself who've come from the syndicate game actually have both or, or all of those things. So we'll see how that plays out. In regards to having unique insights, though, I'm curious as to what you're focusing on with Recharge. Care to go a little bit into detail about some of the some of the markets that you're really interested in? I know you talk a lot about consumer tech and emerging markets. Yeah, absolutely. So I wouldn't say that we are geographically focused investors. Instead, what we do is we take a thematic approach to emerging markets. And there's really kind of two frameworks that we invest under. One is this concept of local champions. And what we mean by that is large regulated platforms in financial services and healthcare that have done extremely well in the United States. We've now seen after a half decade to a decade of operating activity, those same platforms are not able to go and expand into other countries because regulators just simply don't want to deal with multinationals. And so instead, what we've seen is we've actually seen those countries and the regulators become more friendly to innovation within their local environments and actually supporting homegrown causes that are literally copying these business models. And our investments in Newbank and Awala are, are great examples of that. On the other end of the spectrum is what we refer to as the universal appeal of brands, which I alluded to earlier. And what we mean by that is that regulators in general are much less focused on what individuals are wearing or what kind of consumer electronics they're wearing on their heads or their body. And so we truly believe that with the pervasiveness of social media and smartphone penetration broadly, you can have brands that develop in certain parts of the world that are then discoverable by individuals all the way across the globe and there's demand for them there. And so what Recharge really tries to do is discover these brands that we believe have universal appeal and then help with distribution into international markets or vice versa. And so those are kind of like the two thematic themes that we invest under. And what we believe is that the two most attractive areas of the EM are really in Southeast Asia and Latin America at the moment. I think there is definitely going to be future opportunities in Africa and future opportunities in Eastern Europe. But for this particular first fund, our focus is really on the, the Southeast, Southeast Asian region and Latin America. Gotcha. 
Are there any exciting, exciting companies that you all are looking at or like specific areas within those that you want to dive into? What about, tell us a little bit more, like dive a little bit more into the idea behind investing heavily in a brand. Yeah, the idea about investing in brands is, you know, what we're really, where we think brands are going is towards more of a loyalty model, where before brands were so focused on trying to find efficient CAC, we think the focus is really going to turn towards more of an LTV play. And what I look for in particular brands, it's, it's a very large focus on cohort analysis. It's going in and trying to figure out, is this particular brand solving a pain point for this consumer that makes it so they want to come back and continue to purchase again and again and purchase more of it? And it's really hard to find those brands. But what we believe is that brands that have a sustainability component built into their business model that is profitable inherently can build loyalty with a customer base. And we believe ultimately that those are the type of brands that are going to succeed and win long-term. And we really think that we're on the precipice of a very different generation spearheaded by Gen Z on what brands will look like in the future. And I'm really encouraged by it. I really like the idea of a teenager in the Philippines seeing what a teenager in Texas is, is wearing or doing and emulating it. I like the idea of cross-pollination of cultures and sharing and becoming closer as a human race. Totally agree. Yeah. I think the proliferation of social across the globe is huge. I think nowadays, like kids from 10 to maybe even like pre-10 to my age or age, et cetera, like we all see the same things in real time. And the power of brand is becoming incredibly more valuable. Everything from I mean, huge. to sustainability based. Yeah. Like, and uh, everybody coming in now, Tyler, is digitally native. I remember I didn't yep. get my first, <laughs> I didn't have my first cell phone. What was it? Freshman year of high school. And I can't even remember how I communicated prior to that. But, you know, nowadays everybody comes in and they, they immediately have a cell phone. They have access to the internet and they have the ability to share information. And that is just such a huge paradigm shift in our society that's driving so many changes that. We just don't even know what's going to happen. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the, the e-commerce or consumer landscapes evolve in these other countries. Like here, it's, we've seen like the, the advancements towards online, then the reverse, meaning like now we see all these diverse consumers like setting up shop in LA, New York, et cetera. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if that same thing plays out abroad. It, it really will. It's interesting living in New York City now, every time I go down into the subways, you see all the direct marketing going on in there. And so much paid marketing goes into Facebook and search and, and doing that type of marketing. And I, for when we look at brands, we really try to look for something that has some sort of grassroots element to it. I think it's so important to find a particular brand that can kind of get the support that developer tools have gotten over the last few years where you can build up a following from the ground up and almost build an organic performance marketing channel for yourself. And um, it's easier said than done. When you find those particular brands, they're, you know, they create a lot of enterprise value for themselves. Yeah, it's rare. You actually, it's funny nowadays, you actually see, you'll see an early stage consumer play and they'll literally raise based on how many followers they have, no sales, no full product. And you might actually believe it because it, it, it does matter. And a lot of them you'll see will have a global footprint. So you're looking in all the right areas. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So with that, I say this around this time, every podcast, 
I miss Clay. Today we got a little snip out of him early on in the podcast, but we'd love to have him come in and take over so that we can do the quick fire round. You down for that? Yeah. I got one more question just off the record here, or at least off the scripted questions we sent over, but I'm thinking about discoverability of these brands. As you're talking, Justin, I'm just trying to think through how somebody in your shoes discovers some of these brands before they become obvious to everybody else. What are some tactics you're using there just to try to find some of these brands that are maybe obvious in a emerging market, but aren't on anybody's radar here in the, the States or in emerging countries? Yeah, I don't think they're obvious anywhere. And the, the answer to that is community. At the end of the day, like me, I'm a single individual and I can task some individuals from my investment team to try and map out the entire consumer brand universe. But a lot of times by the time you put those that information together, it's obsolete within a few weeks. And the fact is you have to continuously be plugged into different parts of communities, whether you're following stuff on Product Hunt or really just trying to follow different trends on Instagram. And a lot of it is done with building up a family within Recharge that we can bounce ideas off of and collaborate with. And so a lot of this just comes from organic conversation, whether it's through our GP relationships for funds that we hold positions in, or it's just through entrepreneurs that we've already backed. It's, it kind of comes around to the same way that you source deals. Deals can come from any aspect of your life. And that's why it's important to kind of nurture your network from a lot of different facets, because you're never going to have one particular pipeline that's giving you insight into what the next trend is. Yeah, I totally agree. I was reading something recently and it was kind of highlighting exactly that. It's saying information, especially on the internet, it still moves in silos. Like the stuff that matters tomorrow, today is being discussed in either Discord or Slack groups. And then from there, it's packaged up by enough people put onto Twitter, where it's then spread by the masses. And then by the time you hear about it from traditional media outlets, it's probably too late for you to do anything, especially as an investor. So the game for us is finding the right communities, pockets of the internet, where you're closest to the front lines, if you will. That's right. And then you also do the best you can quality inbound. And a lot of that goes through a lot of the published content that we put out. And so we've been doing a lot of research within emerging markets broadly over the last five years. And we've made some new hires recently to go out and publish this content. Because at the end of the day, as you're building a VC fund, you're also building a product at the same time and a brand around that product. And so we want to be known for specialization in a certain spot. And eventually that coupled with track record, coupled with brand in general, should attract the right entrepreneurs to your platform. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think we're thinking about it the same way. But yeah, that's interesting. Appreciate you going off script there. So I think we're good to go with quick fire. So we do these at the end. It's supposed to be five questions answered in two sentences or less. First one we have is what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? Yeah, absolutely. I think a certain one that I used to get a lot was that it was really important to just take every single meeting possible, whether you're investing, whether you're fundraising, whether you're just simply networking. And I think early in your career, it is really important to do that because you don't know where these relationships lead. But I think as you get older, you know, your time is your biggest asset that you have. And it's important to sharpen the pencil just a little bit and realize that you, you can't be everything for everybody. And 
you know, where you spend your time is very important. And so I've tried to get better at that over the last few years because I spent a lot of my early parts of my career sort of spreading myself a bit too thin. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I'm kind of struggling with the same thing right now. And I'm trying to figure out the right amount of meetings, whether it's meetings or just time spent in meetings per day. I think I'm figuring it out. I think it's somewhere between three to four and then having the rest just open for deep work. But yeah, I remember years ago when I was working for Bradley, he had published a piece of content on coffee meetings. And I remember when I first read that, I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I, I would feel grateful to be able to have all those coffee meetings because people wanted to have meetings with me. But, you know, now, several years later, I really do understand where he was coming from. It just becomes so much. I mean, you can literally spend 12 hours of your day doing coffee meetings or sitting on Zoom calls with people. And you start to realize that you, you, you need to have time for other things in life, too. And so it's important just to make sure that you can strategically take particular calls or meetings and you be helpful where you can. And if it, it really doesn't make sense, you try to be helpful in maybe a more efficient manner, whether it's just a note to somebody or something else. Yeah, I totally agree. We were talking to Lolita Taub this past week and she has this interesting doc that she's put together. She's dubbed it Lolita as a service and it's putting together everything that she can do to help somebody, whether it's founder, investor, LP, you name it. And I think that's baked in as an automatic responder after any meeting she has, which I thought is genius. I think she attaches it in her email signature as well. So it's like everybody that she talks to, whether it's an email, phone call, whatever, like they get this, they can reference it, whatever, which (laughs) I think is a lot more scalable. Next one here, in the last year, what new belief, behavior, habit has most improved your life? I would definitely say taking the entrepreneurial plum. I think my entire life, I've sort of stuck to having a traditional job that, you know, pays a salary and not really spending full time sort of taking the plunge into to some real risk. And when I embarked on putting together chaos, that was the first time I had really done that. And it was a pretty exhilarating experience. And honestly, it gives you a lot of confidence to realize that you can make something happen on your own and you don't necessarily need to be on a payroll to make things work. And for me, I think that has been pretty eye-opening and gives me a lot more clarity on not just what I do and how I'm doing it, but also sort of why I'm doing it. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a dream. And I think it also makes you a lot more relatable to founders as well. Once you've actually taken that plunge and a, a bypass salary, I feel like you've just walked a mile in their shoes, makes you more relatable whenever you have meetings again. I think it does. There's a real human element to all of this. And I mean, no matter who you are, I think everybody, you know, goes through struggles in life, whether it's trying to build out their network or get that next promotion or fundraise. And everybody has hit headwinds before. And so when you can empathize and relate with people, I, I think that goes a long way. All right, next one here. Aside from having to say no all the time, what's the worst part about venture? Well, I would say the worst part is it's kind of the best part, but, you know, the worst at the same time. It's just the fact that this is such an ever-changing industry. You literally can never take your foot off the gas. There's an incredible amount of innovation. We see stuff in crypto, frontier tech. If I were to stop even for a month and then come back, I would realize there was so much development in a particular sector, I would feel completely obsolete again. And I literally lose sleep at night sometimes thinking about the fact that 
someday I'll be much older and there will be a whole new crop of generations and VCs that are much more closely uh, intertwined in the industry and ecosystem than I am. And it's really about kind of iterating on your brand and becoming useful to the ecosystem in different ways throughout your life. And I think that's probably the worst part and hardest part about the job, but it's also the best because it, it forces you to continue to innovate and refine yourself and your skill sets. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've thought about that a ton, especially over the past three to four months. If I want to stay on the investment side, which I think I do, or at least dabble in it for the rest of my life, like you almost have to have this thesis of where the world is going and then position yourself in a way where you can actually help founders based on that future belief. And like the belief that Tyler and I are both holding right now, and I guess we're semi-early in believing it, is that community as a moat or community-led businesses are going to be ones that continue to outperform over the next decade plus. So having strategies, tactics, tools there that can actually help anybody that we connect with, that's what we're betting on. But again, like we could be completely wrong. So just refining that and finding ways to actually differentiate yourself as an investor, I think that's really interesting piece. I've been thinking about that a lot too. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, a syndicate model is a beautiful example of it. If you're not greedy and you're not trying to maximize your economics, the power of the community is pretty amazing. And you can bring together your limited partners, your entrepreneurs, and you can essentially create an asset that's a conduit for everybody to extract value from it. And so as you kind of move on throughout your career, you realize that, you know, just like a CEO at a startup, your goal is to, in, your goal in that position is to fundraise and to put people in charge in certain workflows that are better at it than you. And I think as you kind of go throughout your career and build a venture business or whatever type of business, it's important to always put around you the smartest people. And most of the time, that's going to be people that are smarter and better at a particular job than you are. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I think it's all super interesting. All right, got two more here. So best piece of advice for junior VCs or those aspiring to break into venture? Yeah, absolutely. I think when I started out in my career, I always had this impression that I needed to work for Blackstone or my career was a complete bust. And as I've matured and sort of thought more on, you know, my mindset then and my mindset now, what I've realized is what's really important is to go with something that you're very interested in and try to attach yourself to capital, whether that is with a fund that has raised capital or with a startup that has raised capital. That is the probably the most efficient way to get into this industry. It's unlikely that somebody very earlier in their career is going to be able to raise capital themselves. Now, I know that, you know, Stanford dropouts out of GSB are able to do it all the time. And occasionally some undergrads are able to do it too, but that's, that is not the norm. And so I think what is important for anybody who really wants to sort of build out this network over the long term don't be in a hurry just to take an internship with a VC or some junior role if you don't think that's what's really going to develop your skill sets, because this is the long game and VC is something that you can enter at any point in your career. And it's really important that you start to think very early on what makes you different, how do you fit into this ecosystem, and how do you develop long-term skill sets that will allow you to be part of this ecosystem for a very long time. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I've tried to give somewhat similar advice to people that are asking about breaking in. It's just like stand out from the pack, do something else, be really niche and good at a couple of things that you can talk about and just double down on those skills. 
because I think if you're trying to just do the same things as hundreds of other applicants, like good luck standing out. Yeah, I would agree with that. All right, last one here. We do these at the end. Who's a mentor of yours that you'd want to give credit to? Oh, good question. Um, well, let's see. I would, you know, in, in this case, I would say I don't really have a mentor that's like a top executive. The real mentor in my life has been my dad. And he is not a tech exec. He was actually an accountant, which is how I got into accounting to begin with. And he's never provided any capital or really any sort of entrepreneurial connections for that matter. But, you know, he's dealt with a lot of health issues over the years with um, things as bad as brain cancer and stuff. And he's beat those. And honestly, seeing him do that makes the rest of this honestly pretty easy. And it gives me a lot of clarity on again, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it allows me to really enjoy it to another level that I don't think I would have been able to do without his experiences with him. Yeah, that's awesome, man. My mom's a cancer survivor too. And kind of similar deals. She has, my mom knows literally less about software than 99.9% of the world out there, which is super funny, but still just rely on her for advice on different things. But yeah, just kind of having shared experiences with her, like getting her take on things, I think just gives me a lot better judgment. And I think kind of in the same boat as you, it's relying on a parent as a mentor. Yeah, I think it's, for me, it was the first time to really go through true hardship in life. And it's a terrible experience, but a great experience at the same time. And all I can say is that it's great to have my dad because he's always asking me how recharging chaos are doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's scary shit when you hear that your parent has cancer. And obviously your mind first goes worst case scenario. But yeah, I'm glad everything's worked out for both of us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool, man. That wraps it up for Quick Fire. I guess that wraps it up for all the questions we had. I know we just peppered you with questions for the past like 45 minutes, but I think that was awesome. I got a ton of notes out of this. I think our audience is going to get a ton of value out of this. So Thanks again for the time and yeah, can't wait to shoot this out. Awesome, man. No, look, I really appreciate you guys having me. I think it's amazing what you guys are doing and Clay, I'm looking forward to doing some deals with you guys, you know, yeah. an awesome community. I have a lot of respect for what you built. Huge thanks again to Justin for coming on. We hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Justin, we've linked his social info in the description below, and you can also find his contact info in the Confluence VC directory. For next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.bc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.